Father, we come to you, the great I am. Father, this morning we come to you needing you to open your word in such a way that it changes us forever. Father, we come to you, the one in three, per the three persons in one, the Holy Trinity. Father, we come to you because you have all the answers. So work in our hearts, work in our lives, open our eyes, and open our minds to the truth that you have for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, turn to Psalm ch chapter 17, or it's the 17th Psalm is actually, actually the more accurate way of saying it. Psalm 17. We're talking about the adventure of prayer today. Do you hate to ask for help? Anybody here hate to ask for help? Well, you're not alone. Stephen Meek hated to ask for help. In uh, 1845, Stephen Meek, somebody came to him and they said, have you ever been on the Oregon Trail? He said, absolutely. Could you guide us? Absolutely. He hated to ask for help. Over a thousand settlers joined up with him about halfway along the Oregon Trail. Their, their frontiersman, their leader, their, their scout, the person who was supposed to lead them, had fallen sick and couldn't finish the trip, and he told them he knew the way, and he led them. 23 died on the trail. Another 25 died the first day that they were there. 560 of them, when they finally got to where they were going, were so incapacitated that it took them 560, it took them six months before they could do anything. They were so sick, so dehydrated, almost died. And when someone finally said what was the problem, he finally admitted, I got lost. What was supposed to be a three-week journey took four months. They ran out of provisions uh, after about a, oh, six weeks into the trip. I was reading one psychologist says that men think that asking for help is a sign of weakness. I disagree with that. I just haven't found anybody that looks like they have any answers. Are you there with me, guys? I mean, if you, look, if you ever found somebody that, knew, that looked like they knew where they were going, we would ask for help. And I'll never forget the first time that I was going to tile a shower. We had a, a leaky shower in, the, in one of the houses that we had bought at the, the house in Amarillo. And I was going to tile the shower, and I knew nothing about it. And I went to Home Depot because that's where the, all the experts worked. And I asked the guy what to get, and he showed me the tile. And then I asked him, I said, I've heard that you use thin set. He said, oh, thin set is so hard to use. Just use this glue. It will work just as good as thin set on the shower. It did not. We were standing on the shower, and we realized that all of the shower tiles on the bottom were floating because they had popped up. And then it was interesting because if you bumped something with your elbow, a tile would fall down off the wall. And I found out the reason you don't ask for help is they don't know anything. Uh, Andy Stanley, we were watching a, a video in one of the Sunday school classes this morning uh, called He Still Has the Whole World in His Hands, and he makes a statement, we live in a hopelessly broken world. And you maybe have not gotten to this point, but at some point you will need to ask the Lord for help. You may not have gotten to this point, but, but someday there will be an illness. Someday there will be a job situation. Someday something will happen with your child. In fact, if you have children, you know that this day is coming if you haven't already experienced it. There's going to be something that happens with your grandchildren. There's going to be something that happens somewhere in your life where you're going to be forced to ask for help. And you can ask a whole lot of different people. But the Lord says, just ask me. James 4.2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. 
But you notice there's one little word that's also added to that. You do not have because you do not ask God. We ask of our society. We ask of our government. We ask of our jobs. We ask of our spouse. We ask of our family. We ask of everyone else. But the Lord says, when will you ask me? Mark Batterson writes, the greatest tragedy in life is the prayers that go unanswered simply because they go unasked. The greatest tragedy is that we don't get answers to prayer because we never ask in prayer. And I just want to ask you two questions. Do you know how and do you know why you should ask for help? And that's what we're going to look at in Psalm 17. Psalm 17, just to give you a little history, a little background on this, David had been running. And, and a lot of the, the biblical scholars believe that this maybe even was the time after David was running from Saul and he went to his enemy and he acted like he was an imbecile. He acted like he was an idiot and there was saliva. He, he acted literally like he'd lost his mind and saliva was dripping down his beard. And, and, he, and he acted like he was a madman and he did that so he wouldn't be killed. And then he writes this psalm. And, and I think this, the first part of this, verse, verses 1 through 14, tell us how how should I seek? How should I do this? And, and David gives us some insight. Look at this, Psalm 17, verse 1. Hear, O Lord, my righteous plea. Listen to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. May my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. Now, I want to stop here for a second because this is a song. This is, this is poetry, and it's Hebrew poetry, and we don't understand that a lot of times, but it's kind of flowery. But, but cut through that. What has he said? He, he literally has said about five times, hey, God, would you listen? Listen to me. Look at verse 3. Though you probe my heart, and examine me at night. Though you test me, you will find nothing. I have resolved that my mouth will not sin. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept myself from the ways of the violent. He said, I, I've not been lying to you. I've not, I've not done anything violent. Verse 5, my steps have held to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call on you, O God, for you will answer me. Get that. I call because you'll answer me. Give ear to me and hear my prayer. Show the wonder of your great love. You who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the, in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who assail me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. They close up their callous hearts and their mouths speak with arrogance. They've tracked me down. They now surround me with eyes alert to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion hungry for prey, like a great lion crouching in cover. Rise up, O Lord, confront them, bring them down. Rescue me from the wicked by your sword. O Lord, by your hand. He's talking again about that hand. He's, he's using this, uh, this anthropomorphism. He's, he's acting as if God has physical hands. But he says, O Lord, by your hand, save me from such men, from men of this world whose reward is in this life. Now, I'm going to stop there. It's in the middle of the verse, but that's just because that was a really lousy place to put a verse uh, ending is where they did it in verse, in verse 14. And, and David gives us three keys on how to ask. Number one, ask simply. And you say, he didn't ask very simply. And poetry leads us to think sometimes that our prayers should be very flowery. But the rest of Scripture tells us this. And even David says this very simply sometimes when he says things like, The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. There, there are times where it's very simple. But he's really saying, listen, I know you care, and I need your help. And in verse 8, he uses a, a, a phrase that we hear, but we don't really understand. He says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Now, what does that mean? It's a phrase that's first used in Deuteronomy, but it's used throughout Hebrew, and it means that I'm so close to you that I can see my reflection in your cornea. I'm so close, it's like you could take an apple and polish it. I don't know if you've ever gotten an apple that didn't have all the stuff that they put on it today to preserve it, but if you get an apple and you polish it just naturally, it has a sheen to it, and you literally can see your reflection. And he said, just like sometimes you can see your reflection in an apple, we're so close, Lord, I'm so close to you, I can see my reflection in your eyes. I am the apple of your eye. The Lord is that close to us. Friday when we get a call and we go down to the hospital, we realize that when someone's dying, we're the apple of God's eye and we're that close. He says, I'll never leave you. But along with that closeness, there comes this being in sync. When you feel close to God, your prayers become very simple. Isn't that right? You don't have to pray fancy prayers. It's, it's kind of like the operating room, surgeons and nurses. You've seen this in MASH and all kinds of other TV shows and, and hospitals. And the, and the surgeon might say, scalpel. And by the time he says that, the scalpel's already there because the nurse is already anticipating what he wants. They're in sync together, and they know what they're doing, and they've worked together. I've watched others do that. It's one of the reasons I love to work with my wife because I'll say, hey, I was thinking about, and she says, here's the paperwork for it. She's already got it. And she anticipates. She's lived with me for 37-plus years, and, uh, and, and when, when she's done that, she knows me. She anticipates, and we have that oneness. We don't have to say a lot of things. We have an intercom. We don't use it. I just say, hey, Kathy, and she says, I know. And the Lord says, do you understand how simple prayer can be? In Nehemiah, Nehemiah prays some very simple prayers. And in one place in Nehemiah 6, 9, he's asked for specific things. And then he just prays, now I prayed, Lord, strengthen my hands. Or in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is walking out of Jericho. He's going from actually old Jericho to new Jericho. We believe he's, he's kind of caught between the old and the new city because one place says he's leaving Jericho. The other one says he's, he's coming into Jericho. But there's an old city mound and then there's the new city. And he's walking from the old to the new. And there are these blind guys, Matthew chapter 20, verses 30 through 33, uh, 32 and 33. And Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Now look how complex this is. Lord, they answered... We want our sight. Lord, we want to see. And sometimes when we come to the Lord, we make it so complex. We make it so, so over the top. I love Eugene Patterson, uh, Peterson's definition of prayer or his description of prayer. He says, prayer is sputtering out our unrehearsed words to God who calls us to a life with him. Get that again. Prayer is sputtering out our unrehearsed words to God who calls us to a life with him. I was in the, in the foyer one time, and, and I was watching the interaction between moms and, and little kids. I think it was at, a, at an Easter, and there was this little girl who came, and she could barely walk, and she came up to her mom, and you, you could see that she could talk, but, but not well, and she, she said, hold you. Now, is that what she meant? And her mother said, now, honey, until you get the words right, I'm not going to do this. Until you make sure that you use the right vocabulary, that's not the right way that you should say that. You should say, is that what she said? No, she scooped the baby up in her arms. 
And I was laughing, and she turned, and she saw that I was kind of, uh, kind of amused by this, and she said, I always say to her, do you want me to hold you? And she's heard me say, hold you, so many times. She thinks that that's what, so she comes up and says, hold you. The Lord doesn't care if we get the words right. He knows what's in our heart. Sometimes you just need to say, Lord, hold you. And he will reach down and scoop you in his arms and bring you close. Pray, ask simply. Number two, ask repeatedly. Ask repeatedly. David five times in the first couple of verses says, God, listen. He five times later says, I want you to deliver justice. These guys, these evil people are after me. He repeats time after time. In verse 6 he says, give ear. It could also be translated, would you bend down and listen to me? A long time ago, I realized that kids get frustrated because a lot of times adults talk to them by looking down at them. And, and one of the things, as long as my knees are al- allow me to do it, if a child is talking, I try to get down on my knee and I look them in the eye and I get close. Part of it's because I'm losing my hearing, but part of it's because I just want to be close to them and hear what's going on. And David says, Lord, would you get down on your knees and listen to your child? I, I want you to hear me, and he asks it over and over and over again. Now, I've, I read one time a pastor said that if you ask repeatedly, it shows a lack of faith. If you have to ask God more than one time, you don't really believe that God's going to do it, so you pray one time, and, and that's it. Well, I wish that pastor had ever seen Luke 18.1. There's a verse there, Luke 18.1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should pray once and never pray again. Is that what it says? Know that they should always pray and not give up. Always pray. Keep on praying and being in the continuous attitude of prayer, but specifically come back to that specific again and never, don't give up. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah, after three and a half years of being in this drought, he tells the king that there's going to be a, the, the, the rain is coming back. And then he goes on Mount Carmel and he kneels down and he begins to pray. And after he's prayed for a while, he sends his servant. He says, go to the other end of Mount Carmel. Go to the edge there and look over the Mediterranean and do you see any clouds? And the servant comes back and says, no. And he does it again and he does it again. Seven times, seven times before he finally gets to the point where the servant comes back and says, I see this tiny little cloud, but I don't think it's that big of a deal. And about that time, Elijah says, we better get out of here. It's going to rain. Seven times he prays. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 says he pled three times. He pleaded three times with God to remove the thorn in his flesh. We don't know what that was. Maybe it was, it was bad eyesight. Maybe it was some other physical illness. We don't know. But we know that Paul prayed at least three times. Three times he, he was pleading. And it's, it's the word that's used there in the Greek is for someone who's dying and says, I, I, I'm trying to, please give me my life back. It's that kind of pleading. It's the, it's the most urgent plea that you can have. Why doesn't God always answer the first time? Well, we looked at that a week or two ago where sometimes it's just not the right timing. But Paul and David remind us that there's something much more than that. If God had answered David's prayer the first time, he wouldn't have gone into the cave. If God had answered David's prayer, he would not have learned guerrilla warfare. If God had answered David's prayer, he would not have had, had that 13 years of tactical training that he had before he came the king. If, if God had answered David's prayer, David would not have been mature enough and ready enough to be the king that God wanted him to be. And Paul writes, your strength is made perfect when I'm the weakest. 
That's literally the contract. Your perfect strength is there when I'm absolutely so weak I can't lift my arms anymore. And your strength is made perfect in my weakness. So ask. Because your desperation will lead you to humility. And your humility will help you understand the sovereignty of God. That he has a bigger plan. He has a better plan. He has a way to, sh- to make his glory shine forth. He has a way so that when it's all said and done, people won't say, oh, God just answered that prayer. They'll say, I want to believe in the God that you believe in. Ask simply. Ask repeatedly. And then ask boldly. Many of the requests in Psalm 17 are imperatives. They're commands. Can I just say it in in modern vernacular? David is saying, do it. Do it right now. I mean, if you were emailing, it would be all bowls. Or if you're texting, it would be all bowls with exclamation marks. It's, It's an imperative. Verse 13, rise up, confront them, bring them down, rescue me. How do I confront the king of kings with that? Who am I to come to the king of kings and say, listen, rise up, confront them, rescue me. Who am I? I'm a part of the family. I've been adopted in. I've been bought with a price. God says, you're now part of my family. He says in Hebrews 4.16, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Is that how you pray? Do you pray with confidence? Do you ever say, Lord, I, I, and you say, well, I just can't do that. I can't talk, talk to God like that. No, more of us pray like Oliver Twist. Remember Oliver Twist when he comes before the kitchen master in the workhouse and they, somebody else puts him up to it and he comes to them and he says, please, sir, can I have some more? And what does the master say? More? More? You ask for more? And then he hits him with a kitchen ladle, and, and there's, the whole thing erupts. And we say, please, Lord, can I have some more? The Lord doesn't chastise us. Not only does he not chastise us, he says, of course you can have more. Why didn't you ask sooner? I prepared this banquet table for you. And it's not just the name it and claim it, anything you want. But when it's something that our king of kings knows that we need, that it's part of his plan, of course he wants us to ask. Nehemiah 1 is a great example of this. Nehemiah, I I love the the book of Nehemiah when we studied through this, but I, I just keep coming back to it because Nehemiah knows that the city walls have been broken down, the gates are there, and, and the city can just be overrun at any point. And he knows for the, the temple to be rebuilt, there needs to be walls around the city. And even though it, it happened over 75 years before, maybe as much as 100 years before, all of a sudden he gets wind, and all of a sudden God lays on his heart that he's supposed to do something. And he prays this prayer. And at the end of the prayer in Nehemiah 1, verse 11, the last line of his prayer is, Give your servant success today. This is a command that Nehemiah is praying to the Lord. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Who's the man? The man is Artaxerxes. He's a king who's known for his cruelty. Artaxerxes is a man who's known that if he doesn't like what you say, he just lops your head off right in his presence. And he says, I want to have success today. I want to have favor in the presence of this man. But of course, Nehemiah, he had all the credentials to do that. I mean, he had all the standing in the court. He was a guy who was a high mucky muck, right? No, what does it say? I was cupbearer to the king. 
You know who the cupbearer was? He was the one who tasted the wine, who tasted the food in case the king got poisoned. He was considered highly disposable. Because if you ate the food and it was poison, it's like, oh, Nehemiah died. Well, that's a bad deal. Get somebody else in. Okay, i got about 10 seconds. Let's try, let's try this again. You go kill the kitchen staff and you start all over again. The cupbearer, even though they had some trust with the king, they were highly disposable. They were not highly thought of. And yet God used Nehemiah because he came boldly unto the king of kings. And because of that, he could come boldly to Artaxerxes. And God honored that. Ask simply. Ask repeatedly, ask boldly. But there's another part of this. Why should I ask? Why should I ask? It's not just how, but why. Look back to Psalm 17. I want to actually start in verse 13 and read through the end of the chapter, just three verses. Psalm 17, 13 says, Rise up, O Lord, confront them, bring them down, rescue me from the wicked by your sword. O Lord, by your hand, save me from such men, from men of this world whose reward is in this life. Then look at what he says. You still the hunger of those you cherish. Anybody here been on a diet since January 1st? You you made a New Year's resolution? Okay, some of you have done that. Do you ever get hungry? Do you ever feel that when your stomach starts moving around? I was at work the other day, and I thought, man, I hope nobody comes into the office because I was having this conversation. My stomach was going, and I was thinking, I ate breakfast. What's going on here? And he says, you still the hunger. You still the hunger of those you cherish. It's not a physical hunger. It's a hunger for God, for righteousness, for those things. You still the hunger of those you cherish. Their sons have plenty, and they store up wealth for their children. And I, in righteousness, I will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. Why should we pray? Why should I ask? Well, number one, prayer moves God. David prayed to the Lord because the Lord could answer his prayer. What good does it go to ask somebody for something if they have no power? What good does it do to go to someone if they don't have any authority? What good does it do if they don't know what they're talking about, like the Home Depot guy? Well, what? And, and it's not, not anything against Home Depot. I mean, you could have equally bad advice anywhere you go. But what good does it do? God is all-knowing. Here's the problem I have with this, and, and maybe you've never thought of this. Do you remember the verse we looked at a couple weeks ago where it says God knows what we need before we ask him? If he already knows, why does he need me to tell him? If God is the one that that knows what to do and has all the power, why do I need to tell him? Because for some reason he wants us involved. If God is all-knowing, does he need some ill-informed advice from me? Is the way I framed this. C.S. Lewis answers this in a great way. He asks that same question, you know, why should I talk to God? Why should I ask God? This is what C.S. Lewis says. You, You could use the same argument with any human activity, not just prayer. Why wash your hands? If God intends them to be clean, they'll come clean without your washing them. I believe our boys, when they were growing up, believed that in that doctrine, that they didn't ever need to wash their hands. They would just miraculously be clean. Why ask for the salt? Why put on your boots? Why do anything? Get this, God could have arranged things so that our bodies nourished themselves miraculously without food. 
He could have arranged for knowledge to enter our brains without studying. Umbrellas magically appear to protect us from the rainstorms. God chose a different style of governing, a partnership which relies on human agency and choice. C.S. Lewis goes on to talk about the dignity of casualty or, or, or cause and effect, causality. Causality. It, it, it's, there's a cause and effect. Um, there's always this cause and effect. If you run over a nail enough times with your tire, then you will eventually have a nail in your tire and it will go flat. There's a cause and effect. And if you eat the way I like to eat, then you will get to have New Year's resolutions to try to lose weight because there's a cause from overeating and an effect, which is too much weight. There's a cause and effect, and, and it goes on and on and on. And C.S. Lewis points out that that's exactly what happens. But here's the way that God works it. And, and let me give you an illustration of what I remember seeing. In Kansas City, I went to the Plaza Art Fair many, many years ago, and I was fascinated. There was a guy who had some oil paintings that were just, it was not one of these starving artists deal. This guy was, was world-renowned. He was famous, and his paintings started in the $10,000 range, and that was back probably 40 years ago. And, I mean, they went way up from there. This guy was amazing. And he had some blank canvases, and he was starting, and there were some kids that came by, and they said, oh, we love to paint. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking what you're painting as an eight or nine or six-year-old is not going to be what this world-renowned painter is. But this guy was very patient with them, and he said, I'm just starting the canvas. Why don't you help me? And I'm thinking, huh? And he gives both of them a brush, and he says, what color would you like? And one said, I want red. One of them said, I want green. And then they mixed it with yellow, and then there was all, and they were just, they, they were slathering on paint on this canvas that he's already started. And I thought, this guy just wasted a good canvas on a couple of kids. It was kind of a, a shock to my system. And we went through the rest of the art fair, and I, and I noticed that when, he, when the kids got done, the parents were kind of embarrassed, and they gave the brushes back, and he wiped the brushes clean, and he just kind of stood, stood back and looked at the canvas for a minute. About an hour later, we were done with the art fair, and we were walking back, and as I walked back, I was shocked. It was the same canvas. And he had taken the squiggles and the blobs and made it into a masterpiece. And God says, do you understand that I'm going to take the things that you use, the messes in your life, and I'm going to turn them into my masterpiece. But only if you ask me. Only if you come to me and say, God, this is, this is what I have done, and I know I've messed up, can you fix it? C.S. Lewis goes on to say, by inviting us to talk with him, God invites us into relationship. God, before the beginning of time, willed to share with us the love, the fellowship, and the life that he enjoyed within the Trinity. Do you understand that? The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We were singing about the Trinity. And there's a verse in, in Ephesians 2, verse 18. It says, for through him, through who? Jesus Christ, the one who went to the cross for us. Through Jesus Christ, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. The Trinity is all named there. Christ is named. And we have access to the Father by the Spirit. And how do we have access by, this, by one Spirit? Romans 8 says that when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit himself makes utterance for us with words that we can't even understand, with these deep groans for us. And God says, come and ask me because it will move me. When I was growing up, I was a little boy. My, my dad was a pastor. 
And sometimes on sunny nights or other times when things were going on and he was talking with someone, he would let me into his office and I would sit at his big desk and I would twirl in his chair until I would be sick. And then I'd stop that and I would look at his desk. And he had told me, don't mess with anything on my desk. And I noticed there was this sign and I remember seeing it from the time that I was a little boy. And it said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the hand of God. My dad believed that. I later found out that it was a quote from C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Folks, prayer sets God loose. Prayer moves God. God answers prayer. Number two, prayer focuses me on God. David knew that he could ask because of that, but he also knew that it would focus him on God. Did you see in verse 15 it says, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. David's asking that his enemies be punished. David's asking that that they quit running after him, that they quit trapping him. David is saying, God, I'm, I'm in a pickle here. I need your help. And yet he says, when it's all said and done, even if you don't do that, I'll be satisfied with you. God's chief objective is not to be at our beck and call. God's chief objective is not just to provide for our comfort. God's chief objective, whether you can understand this or not, is for God to be glorified, for Jesus Christ to be lifted up, for all people to see who he is and come into relationship with him. He longs for us to learn about him and grow in his love and experience his presence and a taste of his glory. Be still and know that I am God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. One time, some years ago, we were in Southern California and someone uh, felt sorry for us. I think it was getting close to our our, uh, anniversary date and they knew I was a poor pastor, didn't have a lot of money, and they had somehow gotten a free night at the Hotel Del Coronado. Anybody know about that hotel? Beautiful, gorgeous hotel in San Diego on the little island of Coronado. Uh, the rooms start at $250 a night and go way up. And it wasn't in the old section, but it was there. And they gave us this, and, and they said, you know, not only that, we're going to pay for a meal. And we went in. The meal cost more than we normally pay for a hotel for the night. I mean, it was, it was like $100 for a meal. It was one of those, you know, there was no menu. It's, here's, these are your two options, and it's the same price no matter what you do. And the food was just spectacular, but you're sitting right on the beach looking out in the ocean. And I sat there, and I looked at Kathy, and I said, it's good to be the child of the king. Because God provided that. A family did that for us. And it was such a loving thing. It's taste and see. It's not about riches. It's not about wealth. It's understanding that God loves you. And it was at a time when we were hurting because we were, we finally, our children had moved off. And we realized that the closest one lived over a thousand miles away. And some people can't wait for their last kid to leave home. We wish our last one was still around. And God knew that. And he, and he says, can you understand that if you'll come to me, you can taste and see that I am good? And we see this time after time. We get our focus on other things, and God will bring us back with, with times like that. There's the time when Peter, you know, Jesus is out walking on the water, and, and Peter says, Lord, if, you, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Matthew talks about this, uh, Matthew 14, 29, 30. Peter says, if it's you, tell me. And and the Lord, come, he said, the Lord said. And Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. You just, we, we read through that so fast. Did you get that? Peter got out of the boat and walked on the Sea of Galilee. 
He didn't walk on stones. He didn't walk on the shore. He walked on the water. It's impossible. I mean, at that point, the other 11 have got to be going, man, I wish I'd asked if I could walk on the water. Peter always gets the, man, I wish I'd done that. But when he saw, that's Peter, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. You see, in the midst of our life, when we've had that taste of glory and, and God has revealed himself one more time and he brings us back and says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And, and, and all of that's happened. We so quickly get our eyes on something else. And we begin to sink. Is it easier to remain in the boat? I mean, if you're one of the, the disciples, you know, when Peter's walking, they're all going, man, I wish that had been me. And then when Peter's sinking, John's going to, to James. <laughs> Yeah, see, I'm kind of glad I didn't get out there now. Look at Peter. Is it easier to stay in the boat? Absolutely. Is it easier to stay single? Absolutely. You know, life is complicated, and the more that you put into your life, the more complicated it is. Is it easier not to have children? Sometimes, yes, it is. Absolutely. Is it easier not to have dogs? Absolutely. Sometimes it is. But you know why you have those things in your life? Because they enrich your life. If you understand what children and your spouse and and all of these things do, they mature us and they grow us and and God uses them in in an amazing way. All these things God gives us for our good. But when life gets complicated, when it gets tough, would you be satisfied if God says, I'm not going to answer your prayer, but I'll be with you? Would that be enough? David says... When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. If God never answered another prayer in your life, if he, if he told you for the rest of your life, listen, no matter what you pray, I'm not going to answer it in this life. It may happen later, but I'm not going to do it. But I want you to know when you wake up, you'll see me. Will you be satisfied with me? Would you rather God do everything you want him to do, or do you want him more than anything? Prayer focuses me back on God. Here's the last one. Prayer activates my faith. When David finished this prayer, he was still running from Saul. When David finished this prayer, they were still going to have, he was still going to have Ziklag, where all of the, the, he and the 300 men, actually 600 men by that time at Ziklag, all of them are going out doing something else. They come back and all of their wives, all of their children, all of their livestock, everything they have has been stolen. You know, these, these guys came and, these, and they, they, the bandits took everything and left. And he comes and the men want to kill David and David's going, wow, this is really a good gig, God. I'm, I'm so glad you let me do this. And the Lord says, do you understand what prayer does? Not only does it move God, not only does it focus us on God, but it it activates our faith. Sometimes what God gives us to do is to to ask and act. In 1 Samuel 30, there's a story. The the widow widow of Zarephath comes, and Elijah sees this widow, and and he's hungry, and he says to her, uh, go take some flour, woman, and, and make me some bread. Take the oil and flour. And she says, you don't understand. I, you know, I see that you're a prophet, and, of course, our, our customs here are always to take care of uh, someone who is wandering, who, someone who's coming through. They didn't have Holiday Inn, and so everyone was supposed to be hospitable to someone else. And she said, I would make you a little, I'd make you a little biscuit here. I'd make you a donut, but this is the last flour and oil that I have. 
I, I can't make you a bagel right now because this is all I have and I, I'm going to go make the last one for me and my son and, and then I'm going to go die. And what does Elijah say? Make me one first and see what God does. Why didn't he say, make one for you and your son first? No, God put it in Elijah's mind that this woman needed to have her faith activated. And so she did, and God provided for her for months and years because she activated her faith. There was a time when, when the Lord is speaking to, to Peter and, and, and the, some of the Pharisees and Sadducees come up and they say, hey, are you going to pay your temple tax? And Jesus is going, wow, I don't have my wallet here. Peter, Peter says, man, I'm out of money. And Judas is not around, and Judas probably had the money spending it on something else. And the Lord didn't have the temple tax. And so he says to Peter, go out and catch a fish, and there will be the exact coin you need to pay your temple tax and my temple tax in the mouth of the fish. What did Peter do again? You can say it out loud. What did he do? What what was his occupation? He was a fisherman. How many fish do you think he had caught with the exact coin that they needed in in the mouth of that fish? He'd caught hundreds, if not thousands of fish. He'd never seen a coin in any fish's mouth. He goes out and catches one fish, and guess what's in the mouth? The exact coin. Don't you think God has a sense of humor? Peter's going to go out fishing one more time. Watch this. Hey, Gabriel, come watch this one. You've got to see what's going to happen with this deal. But he activated Peter's faith. And in the Old Testament, we're told in Joshua chapter 3, verse 8, after they'd wandered 40 years in the desert. In the desert, how many rivers do you get to see? And all of the adults, other than Joshua and Caleb, they had all died in the desert, so none of them had even been around the river. And then they come to the Jordan, not just any time, but it, we're told at flood stage, when it's running as fast as they can, and this is what they're told. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. I don't think so. You know... What Moses did is he just held his staff over it and the waters parted. Why don't you ask the Lord if he can just do that again? And the Lord said, no, this time I want you to get your feet wet. And so many times we come and we ask simply and repeatedly and boldly. And the Lord says to share Christ's love, to live in God's grace, to walk by faith. Ask and act. I'll close with this. There's a place called the Birmingham Dream Center. There was a a young woman by the name of Lisa. Lisa was a reporter in Birmingham. She was uh, she was way up in in the you know in the echelon of what was going on there. And she went to the Dream Center day after day, time after time. And she realized that there was needed, they needed some help, and so she quit her job as a reporter. She took a job that paid one-third of that, and she began to work in the Dream Center. She came to know Jesus Christ. It transformed her life, and she began to ask God to help these women who came to the Dream Center because they were prostitutes. They were on drugs. They were, they were the lowest of society in Birmingham. They were people that nobody else wanted. The government programs wouldn't help them. They'd been kicked out of everywhere. These were the people society hated. These were the people that nobody wanted to touch anymore. These were the people who were hopeless and had no hope in their life. And Lisa began to work with them. 
And one day as she's getting ready, she realizes she doesn't have enough money really to pay the rent and she's going to have to go to a cheaper place to live. And she's asking the Lord to provide for her. And she said, "Just," she said, I didn't hear a voice, but as I was praying for the Dream Center, the Lord said, take some wool socks with you. And she said, huh? I, I know it's cold out, but I'm going to be dressed. And, and she said, again, I didn't hear a voice, but I knew as I was getting my socks to put them on, it was like the Lord said, put some wool socks in your purse. And she said, that made no sense to me whatsoever, but I stuck a pair of wool socks, and I literally said to God, yeah, right, what are you going to do now? And I went to the Dream Center. And spread out in front of the door so I couldn't even unlock it that morning. I was unlocking the door and there was this prostitute. She was only half dressed and she literally had collapsed in front and she was unconscious. And I could see that she had hypothermia and she was so cold. Even in her unconscious state, she was shaking. And she said, I I literally scraped her up, got her out of the way, opened the door, turned the heat on, dragged her inside. And she said, I began to realize that if, uh, she said, I called 911, but I realized this girl wasn't going to make it. And she said, I just began to hug her and she smelled horrible. She smelled of cigarettes and alcohol. And she said she'd thrown up. It was nasty. And she said, I was hugging her. And all of a sudden, the warmth of my body and the warmth of that place revived her. And she woke up. She said to Lisa, are you an angel? She said, no, I'm just a person who cares. And Lisa said this, and get this. If you could have anything today, what would you have? And without hesitation, the woman said, my feet are so cold if I just had some wool socks to put on. And she used the word wool socks. And Lisa pulled those socks out of her purse and handed them to her. And the girl looked down and she said, how did you know what color my outfit would be? These are orange wool socks and I have an orange dress on today. Lisa writes, God is, not, is great not just because nothing is too big for him. God is great because nothing is too small for him. A sparrow doesn't fall without his noticing and caring. So it shouldn't surprise us that he cares about a woman who just wanted some wool socks. Folks, we do not have because we do not ask. And when we do, it moves God and it changes us. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, you know each person who's here today. You know what's on their heart. You know what's in their life. You know what their needs are. I don't. But I ask you today to change lives, to change hearts. To have prayer come so alive in our life that we'll never be the same. Father, we want your Holy Spirit, when we're praying, to speak to us, not audibly, but just so that we know without a shadow of a doubt what you're asking us to do. Father, we know that you can do that. Father, we don't ask enough, and we try to make it too fancy. And we don't come with confidence. So may we trust in you, the one who provided not only socks for that woman, but Jesus Christ, the person that she received as her Savior later when Lisa led her to Jesus Christ. And nothing is too small, and nothing is too great for your notice. So may we live in that truth today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.